All right, well, good morning. I'm Pastor Tommy. I'm really glad that you are uh, joining us this morning for the first Sunday of Advent. If you have your Bibles and you haven't opened them, I encourage you to have them open to Matthew chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible with you, please use one of the ones underneath your seat or the seat next to you. If you don't own a Bible, we have a table in the back with free Bibles. Please take one uh, this morning. That is our Christmas gift to you uh, today. So we're going through the sermon series in Matthew. We've been going through it uh, since the beginning of the semester, and we're going to continue going through it probably for a couple of years. Uh, It's going to take a little bit of time. Uh, So what have we learned so far about Jesus in the book of Matthew? We've learned a lot. Uh, In in these first eight chapters, Jesus is introduced not just as another man, another person. He is the man. He is the promised king that all of the Old Testament has been pointing to. So what does it mean that he is this promised king? This question is really at the heart of what Matthew is trying to convey to us as he's telling us about the life and the ministry of Jesus. One of the themes that you see is that kings have authority. Kings have authority, and Jesus is no different. This is a major theme that Matthew has been emphasizing all the way since the beginning of Jesus' ministry. In chapter 4, we see Jesus out in the wilderness. He's hungry. He's exhausted. He's tempted by Satan. Satan tells him to exercise some of your authority and your power. Jesus, make some food for yourself. Throw yourself off of this high place and demonstrate. Flex your power. And then Satan says to Jesus, bow down and worship me and I'll give you everything you have ever wanted. And through these trials, Jesus demonstrates, among other things, that he has complete authority first over himself. It seems basic enough, but this is a stark contrast to any other human who has ever lived. He does not succumb to temptation. He does not yield to evil. He is not enslaved to sin even in his weakest human estate. When we are all prone to give in, when we are prone to blame our weariness and our tiredness or whatever whatever other circumstances that might explain but never excuses our sin, Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus has authority over himself. Then in chapter 4, he calls the first disciples to follow him. He's exercising authority to lead others. He gives a Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 through 7, showing that he can teach, but his teaching is even different as the promised king. You see this in Matthew 7, uh, verses 28 through 29. This is at the end of his sermon. It says, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as one of their scribes. Then after this, in chapter 8, we see Jesus miraculously healing every single affliction uh, that comes to him. He's demonstrating his authority over the human body. Then after that, we see him calm a horrifically powerful storm at sea with just a word, which demonstrates his authority over creation. Then last week, we saw him cast out these violently oppressive demons with just a single word, again, demonstrating his authority over demonic spirits. So that's authority over himself, authority to lead others, authority to teach, authority over the human body, authority over creation, authority over demonic spirits. Like, is there a limit to his authority as the promised king? And the, this morning, we reach the climax of this mini-narrative in Matthew's account of Jesus, where he's showing us this increasingly revealed authority of Jesus. And the account that we're reading this morning is not just about a paralyzed man walking. What we'll see this morning is the level of authority which only God has, which is an authority over sin. 
Jesus is not just a man, uh, and he's not just a king as we know kings. He is the promised God king who has all authority in heaven and on earth over all things seen and unseen. And Jesus uses this authority to forgive us of our crippling sin so that we can walk in new life in him. Before we jump into verse one, let's pray one more time. Father, you, you have all authority. You rule and reign. We thank you that you are God, that it's not us who rules and reigns. I pray this morning that you would give us a glimpse into that authority, Lord. God, we thank you that with that authority, you bless us, God. Give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, give us hearts to be able to receive your word this morning. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Starting in verse 1. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic laying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. So Jesus leaves the Gadarenes as requested, and he's back in Capernaum, which is his home base for ministry. And and this is the scene that unfolds. Verse 2, And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic laying on a bed, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. So a group of people bring to Jesus someone who is paralyzed. This is not the first time that Jesus has healed someone who has been paralyzed. This isn't some novel new experience of healing. At the very beginning of his ministry, back in chapter 4, verse 24, we read this. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. So we've seen this before. The physical healing of this paralytic isn't actually the main point of this passage, as incredible and miraculous as that part is. But there's something new and unique that's happening with this paralytic that has never happened before in Jesus' ministry. Matthew tells us in the second part of verse 2, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now, this is a peculiar sentence that Matthew records. It isn't what we'd expect, at least in two ways. First, you would expect that Jesus would find the faith of the paralytic to be notable, not those who brought the paralytic to Jesus. And second, you would expect Jesus to physically heal the paralytic, but he doesn't, not right away. Jesus tells the paralytic that his sins are forgiven. Now, it's this strange interaction that confuses some and it irritates other people in Jesus' audience. And so understanding these two things in this one sentence is the key to unpacking this, this whole passage. So that's what we're going to focus on this morning. First, what about the faith of the people who brought Jesus, the paralytic, was noteworthy? What was noteworthy about their faith? Well, we already saw that Jesus has high praise for those who place their faith in Jesus' authority on behalf of of others. Remember the story of the centurion earlier in chapter 8, verses 5 through 13? If, if you remember, it's this Roman centurion who asks Jesus to heal his servant, and Jesus says, sure, I'll come to your house and I'll heal them. And the centurion goes, no, you don't need to come to my house. I, I know how authority works. I say to my soldiers, go, and they go. I tell them to stay, and they stay. 
I understand that your authority is much higher than mine, so all you need to do is, is to say it, and my servant is going to be healed. And then remember his response. I, I have it on the screen, verse 10. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Faith is not strictly a personal experience between you and God. The, the fruit of our faith as Christians, it extends to and it impacts the world around us. To, to be a Christian requires a personal faith in God, but, but, but then that trust, when it is acted on, when we live in such a way that relies on Jesus to be and do what only he can be and do, it can literally change the world around us. But this is when living out our faith can become, become difficult. <clears throat> Excuse me. Because it's one thing to have our own convictions for ourselves, but it takes a much deeper conviction to impress that belief onto other people. So this is when we say things like, hey, this works for me, but it might, it might not for you. If our conviction or our belief in, in our faith in something isn't strong, then we're not likely going to press it upon other people. Let me give you a practical example. Uh, my mom, lover, I just saw her yesterday, she is a, a, a trained and practicing homeopath, okay? And I don't know if you know anything about homeopathy. It's an alternative medicine. It's, it's based on uh, this theory of, of treating like with like. And so uh, the way that it works is by stimulating healing responses in your body by administering substances that kind of mimic the symptoms that you would have of those diseases that you're trying to fight. I'm not, I don't understand it completely. That's kind of the point of this. Um, it might sound strange to you, uh, but it's, it's not like witchcraft, okay? Like my mom is a faithful follower of Christ, and she has a deep conviction regarding the effectiveness of homeopathy. She's treated hundreds of people and seen hundreds of cases. She's seen incredible results. And so whenever there is an ailment in our family, that's what she leads with. She's like, take apis if you gotta be sting. Uh, have a little calendula, and these are all natural things that exist in the world, right? Like these are, it's not like a newt, okay? These are like uh, actual things like plants. Take some calendula cream and put it, if you have a rash, put it on your skin. If you have a bruise, take arnica. And so she has this conviction, and she has enough of this conviction and this trust that she pushes it, very lovingly, pushes it on those around her. I do not share this same conviction I do not share the same faith in homeopathy. Now, I'm not on the other end of the spectrum thinking that it, it's a complete hoax, but if you tell me that you have a headache, I'm going to pray for you, and I'm going to recommend you take some acetaminophen, because that's just what I know. My level of faith in homeopathy is at a place where I'm not going to push that on other people. I'm not saying it's wrong. It might, might work for you. It might not work for you. It works for me, but you do you. So I think sometimes, this, is my how, this might be how we approach our faith in God. And someone in your midweek might say, hey, I have a migraine, and we might be very quick to lay hands on them and pray for them, right? But maybe your coworker says, hey, I've got like a splitting headache today. I think you would be less quick, at the very least, to lay your hands on that person and pray for them. So what's happening there? This is what is notable about the faith in this passage. The people believe and trust and have a faith in Jesus so much that they press it upon their paralyzed friend. 
in the most beautiful way. They bring their helpless friend to Jesus. And this is what is notable to Jesus. Because having a faith that extends beyond yourself, when you're willing to stake your own reputation on it, that is big faith. That is big faith. And boy, did these people stake their reputation on it. Matthew leaves out this detail. And I think that is to help us focus on just the mere presence of faith and not to get bogged down with what that faith looks like. But in Mark's account, we read this. This is in chapter 2, verses 2 through 5. And many were gathered together, so there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Luke's account includes some of these details as well. Like, talk about putting your faith and your reputation on the line. They are climbing the side of this house, and then they tear a hole in the ceiling of the house. There's nothing lost in translation here. This is not normal first century behavior. It's just as unacceptable to demolish a section of someone's ceiling then as it would be now. It took big faith to do what they did for their paralyzed friend. To have the conviction and the trust in Jesus to look at their friend and say, all we need to do is get you to Jesus. That's all we have to do. You've been paralyzed your entire life. You've never walked. He's got real authority. He heals everyone that is brought to him. And so imagine their exhilaration as these four guys are carrying their buddy to meet Jesus. But then imagine their dismay when they get there and they see this crowd. It's, it's so big that they can't even get to the threshold of the door to see Jesus. Now, I, I think I can imagine a world where the paralyzed man is saying, it's okay, guys. Like, what's important is that we tried. Thank you so much for being my friends and, 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 and having enough belief to get me to this point. Like in any Hallmark holiday movie, which is the season that we're in, that would be enough for a happy ending. They'd be like, true joy is not in changing our circumstances, but instead realizing the gift of friendship that was there the whole time. That's not what happens here. At least one of the friends is like, oh, no, 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 no. We did not come all this way for nothing. We need to just get you to Jesus. We need to just let his eyes be laid upon you and, and get his hands on you, and he, he will not turn you away. Come on, I've got an idea, guys. Can you imagine a crew of people scaling the side of a house, lifting their paralyzed friend that's tied to a cot up the side of it? And then they get to the top and they're like, all right, what now? Right? Because one of them had the idea. They're like, all right, they're looking at him. Well, what do we do now? And he's like, all right, we're, we're going to go through it. <laughs> and they're like, through the roof? And that's what they do. See, there's nothing personal about the faith of these friends. It wasn't like a quiet faith that they just kept to themselves. This is the kind of faith that our, our cultures wants us to have. Like, hey, keep it to yourself. Look, it works for you, but don't press that upon anybody else. Their faith is the kind of faith that prays for other people when those others can't pray for themselves, when they don't even want to pray for themselves. It's the kind of faith that isn't afraid of offending anyone, isn't afraid of damaging their own reputation. It isn't afraid of being wrong or being made a fool of. 
It's the kind of faith that's willing to pay a price. It's the kind of faith that makes the blind see and the lame walk. It's the kind of faith that demolishes holes in ceilings for their friends just so that Jesus can lay his compassionate eyes and powerful hands on your friend. Mercy House, be a friend with this kind of faith. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they differ a lot in some of the details of this interaction. But one thing that they all say in unison, this is going to be on your screen, Mark 2, verse 2, and when Jesus saw their faith. Luke 5, 20, and when he, that's Jesus, saw their faith. Matthew 9, verse 2, and when Jesus saw their faith. Is our faith blessing those around us? Mercy House. Is our trust in Jesus bringing light into the darkness around us. It was the faith of these friends that got their paralyzed friend into the room with Jesus. And we're reading about it now. Mercy House, are we carrying our friends to the feet of Jesus? Our friends who are physically, emotionally, spiritually crippled, who cannot make their way to Jesus, are we willing to pay the price? Are we willing to invest the time? Are we willing to suffer the social ridicule or bear that burden? The Gadarenes in the previous passage weren't willing to do it. They weren't. That's the biggest contrast between last week's passage and this week's. Faith in Jesus was costly for them. They, they took an economic hit when their entire herd of pigs was drowned. And that cost which was in exchange for the healing of their demon-possessed friends, was too great for them. They said, it's not worth it. They begged Jesus to leave. They said, we don't want you here anymore. You're making too big of a mess of things. The price is too high. Leave, Jesus. And he leaves. There are times when loving others is nice, neat, and convenient. And then there's other times, maybe most of the time, when loving others is heavy work where it is exhausting, it is time-consuming, where it is highly inconvenient for you, when it's going to feel like you are carrying the dead weight of your friend up the side of a building, and when you are doing the manual labor of demolishing a ceiling just to be able to bring people to Jesus, not sure if Jesus is going to help. And we're going to be tempted to say to Jesus, this is too messy. I can't bear this burden. The cost is not worth it. And maybe we'll be tempted to be like the Gadarenes and effectively say, Jesus, we don't want anything to do with what you're doing here. I can't do this. It's in these moments, brothers and sisters, when we must pray that God would give us faith, give us zeal, give us the compassion that these friends of the paralytics are showing to take steps of faith that presume upon the compassion and the power of King Jesus with hopeful expectation. It's the faith of these friends that compels Jesus to say what he says next. Verse 2, And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Why does Jesus say this instead of healing the paralytic? The connection between sin and sickness was very strong in the first century world. In other words, sickness, really any kind of sickness, was seen as a result of your sin. Now, there's an unhealthy extreme to that connection, which can produce 
something that's similar to what Alden brought up last week about demons. Like not every form of physical or mental or emotional illness is brought on by demons. And similarly, not every twisted ankle is a result of sin. Not every cough or cold is brought on because you lied or cheated or murdered. But to say that there's zero connection between the two, between sin and sickness, it it wouldn't be biblical. So a few places where this comes up. Psalm 32, David shares his testimony of a time that he's suffering under the effects of his unrepentant sin. And this suffering isn't just like an emotional suffering. It is a, a, there's a physical component to how he's suffering. And that physical component is specifically relieved when he finally confesses the sin to God and God's forgiveness of his sin also brings about a physical relief to his bones that are, quote, wasting away and his strength that is, quote, dried up. Another place you see this is in Psalm 103. This should be on your screens. This is David again. He says, bless, it, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Biblically, sin and sickness are connected. And simultaneously, forgiveness of that sin and healing from sickness are also connected. So I want you to take a mental note of that as we go forward. This is not just a connection that you see in the Old Testament. Uh, In John chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, Jesus is walking with his disciples, and you read this, verse 1, as he passed by, he saw a a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So it was widely understood that sin and sickness were connected together. And Jesus' own disciples believed this. They see a man who's born blind and they assume that it was either personal, the personal sin of this man or his parents that resulted in his blindness. Now, something to also remember or to know is that the severity of an illness or a deformity, it's scaled with the severity of the sin. So do you have like a perpetual cough? You've got like a little sin. Do you walk with a limp all the time? That's slightly more sin. Do you have complete paralysis of your body? That's great sin. Now, I say this because the paralytic in this text would have had an acute awareness of his own sin. Whether that paralysis was actually a result of his sin or not, this is what he he would have been told and reminded of ever since he was paralyzed. This is what he would have heard people saying about him. That, wow, look at that sinner. And this wasn't just a run-of-the-mill hacking cough or limping sinner. He's a person that is, has so egregiously and severely been sinful that he couldn't even move his body. And this is what he would have believed. And culturally, they saw paralysis as, as bad as it could get. I mean, think about it. You are so sinful that your body just ceases to function the way that it should. Now, the reality is that the awareness of the severity of his own sin is not wrong. It's not wrong. He had a more accurate understanding of his own sin than maybe anyone else around him. Practically speaking, if sin manifested itself physically and completely in our bodies right here and right now, we wouldn't just be paralyzed, Mercy House. We would be dead. So that is how severe sin is. 
this man accurately understood how sinful he was. And this challenges our understanding of sin, does it not? I mean, he's paralyzed. Like, how much trouble can you get into? I'm not trying to be funny. Like, how much sin could someone be capable of if you couldn't move? Apparently quite a lot. Sin is not just committed when it manifests itself in external actions. Jesus teaches on this during his Sermon on the Mount, that anger in the heart is akin to murder with the hands, that lust in the heart is akin to adultery with others. Sin has so corrupted and infected us that even if we were paralyzed and unable to move, we'd still need the death of our King Jesus to forgive us of our sins. Now, this paralyzed man's greatest need was not having his body restored. What plagued him and haunted him more than his paralysis was his sin, and he knew it. And Jesus knew it, which is why Jesus looks at him and says tenderly in verse 2, Take heart, my son. This is an incredibly affectionate way to say, Be encouraged. Fear not. Have courage. Don't dread any longer. None of us in this room can relate to the level of fear that this man had. He, he was paralyzed. He was helpless. He couldn't go to the bathroom on his own. He couldn't feed himself. He knew he was a sinner. And the worst part was that he could not go to the temple to atone for his sins. He couldn't make a sacrifice to God. He couldn't go in and say, God, I'm sorry. I'm a sinner. Have mercy on me. He couldn't do that. He had no chance for reconciliation with God. He had no hope of avoiding his fate, of being in his sin, to be forever separated from God. So how powerfully necessary was the faith of his friends? And how powerfully encouraging are the words of Jesus when he says in verse 2, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. This is the gospel. God came to the one who literally could not go to God. He couldn't go to the temple. God shows his mercy and shows his grace to those who have an awareness and acknowledgement of their sin. He is kind and tenderhearted to those who are distraught and discouraged in their sin. And he forgives sin even when we are powerless to initiate and when we have nothing in return to offer. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. If you're not a Christian... I said it before and I'll say it again. If, if you were to have your physical health reflect your sin right now, you would not just be paralyzed. You would be dead. That is how egregious and severe our rebellion of God is. But hear the hope of the gospel in this passage. If you acknowledge your sin before God, if you place your faith in God, Jesus, who has the authority and the power to forgive sin here, you too can take heart. You too don't have to be afraid anymore. You don't have to be hopeless anymore. You can take heart and hear that your sins are forgiven. They're forgiven. Now, when this paralyzed man heard this, I'm convinced that his heart was full. I'm convinced he was content. I think if Jesus left him paralyzed, he'd be okay with that. But not everyone in the crowd was as joyful as him. Look at verse 3. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. 
Remember uh, scribes? Uh, they were the Bible teachers of that time. They were the seminarians and the theologians. It would have been their job to be very critical of teaching to differentiate what was biblical and right doctrine from what is not biblical and wrong doctrine. And, and their mental alarms are sounding off when they see and hear this interaction, and rightfully so, because men do not have the authority to forgive sins. So not even the religious elite, the scribes and the Pharisees, they didn't have this kind of authority. The priests didn't have this authority. Not even the high priest, no human, has the authority to forgive sins. That's because this is not a debt that a man can forgive. Because that debt isn't against any man. So for example, after this, we can go out to lunch and and I can pick up your lunch for you, and, 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 and I can tell you that, hey, don't worry about paying me back. I can forgive that debt because that debt is against me. But I can't say, hey, d- don't worry about your parking tickets. Or like, hey, your student loan debt is forgiven, right? Or, uh, hey, that mortgage you have, don't worry about it. You don't have to make payments on that anymore. I don't have the authority or the means to be able to do that. So you have to hand it to the scribes here. They are just doing their jobs, and they're doing a good job at it. In both Mark and Luke's account, they say very accurately, who can forgive sins but God alone? So they're doing what is right. It's a common misconception, I think, uh, that Jesus never calls himself God. This is just untrue. In this moment alone, uh, the, the, the authority that he is claiming communicates very clearly that he is aligning himself as God. And that's why the scribes throw their challenge flag. If Jesus is just a man like any other man, this is blasphemy. And the punishment for blasphemy is not just like a slap on the wrist, not like a little timeout. It would be death by stoning immediately. So here we see the first sign of opposition that will eventually boil over and lead to the crucifixion of Christ. The scribes were willing to receive Jesus as a great teacher. They had no problem with him being a healer. They had no problem with him working miracles. But forgiving sin, this is the moment where the awe and the wonder begins turning into some anger and malice toward Jesus. And here's the crazy thing. Jesus could have let it slide. He could have. This was in the heads of the scribes, but he doesn't. Look at verse 4. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said... Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? Jesus calls out the scribes. This whole scene could have just been two verses. Everything that comes after verse three is in the heads of the scribes and Jesus didn't need to bring it into the light, but he does. He gives the scribes an opportunity to consider their thought process here because as he says, it is evil. It's evil. Here's why it's evil to think, that the way, uh, think the way that they're thinking. They are not thinking rightly about God. They're actually thinking badly of God. They are rejecting his authority to forgive sins, and therefore they are rejecting his authority as God. And rejecting the authority of Jesus, that is not a passive stance. That is rebellion. It is literally wrong. It, it's believing and living a lie. It, it is destructive to ourselves and to others when we do not think rightly about God. It's how angels become demons and how Satan became the evil one. This is rebellion against God. This is why we, your pastors at Mercy House, want you to have right doctrine and good theology. We want you to 
know what is right and true about God as it's revealed in God's word. Not only because having a right understanding about God leads you to be blessed with a firm foundation for your faith as you navigate through life, but to think wrongly is incredibly detrimental to you. So I want to challenge you that not thinking rightly about God is not just always a difference of opinion. It can be destructive and damaging to you and your faith. I think this is why Jesus doesn't let it slide. It's serious, and he loves these scribes too much to just let them continue being wrong without saying a correcting word. And so Jesus corrects them with a question. He asks them, is it easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or is it easier to say, rise and walk? Which one is easier? Now, if you think about that for a minute, it would seem that it would be easier just to say, hey, your sins are forgiven. Why? Because you can't really verify that. So if I tell you, like, hey, your sins are forgiven, there's no way to immediately say, like, okay, are they actually forgiven? But you can say, rise and walk, and that's, you're either right or you're wrong. Either you have the authority to do that, or you do not. And so what I love about this moment is that Jesus backs himself into a corner. Remember, he, he didn't have to do any of this. He, he could have just said, hey, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven, and left these evil thoughts in the heads of the scribes, and then just moved on to his next place of ministry. But look what he does, verse 6. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid. And they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. This is the, the line that the scribes draw, that Jesus is not allowed to pass. You can't, you can't forgive people of sins. And then this right here is Jesus walking straight through that line without even flinching. Do you see how the healing is kind of secondary here? Isn't that incredible? It's not even the focal point. The, the point of tension is not in Jesus' authority as a healer. That's already been established in Matthew. We already know that he can do that. It's in his authority to forgive sin, sins, something only God can do. And so the scribes were, were right about that part, saying that only God can do this. Jesus calls out the scribes, and he heals this man for one reason. It is to tell everyone right there what, he, what, what is happening in verse 6, that he does have authority to forgive sins. Jesus is not just a great teacher. He's not just a healer. He's not just a miracle worker. He's not just able to cast out demons. He is the God King who, who was promised to come and to restore his people to himself and who would forgive them of their sins. Jeremiah 31 says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Verse 33, And this is the covenant that I will make with the people of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his own neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive them of their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. The days are here. So that's Jeremiah saying, hey, there's a day coming. The day is here. Jesus is establishing this new covenant with his people. He's transforming their hearts. He's establishing his throne as their kin, king, and he is forgiving them of their sin. It's happening. 
Now, this is not just an evangelistic text for those people who don't know Jesus. Our forgiveness is something that we as Christians need to be reminded of. Jesus doesn't tell the paralytic, the sins that you've committed up until this point have been forgiven. He doesn't say, you are broadly forgiven for most of your sins. He says to the paralytic in verse 2, take heart, my son, your sins. So that is in their totality, all of them, past, present, and future. Every sin that you have committed, every sin that you are actively committing right now, because I can read your mind and I know that you're probably sitting right now. That's Jesus speaking, not me. Every sin that you're going to commit, now that you have, he's speaking to the, like, uh, the, the parallel, like you've got a restored body now, you're going to have access to a whole new slew of sins that you've never had access to before now that you can use your body. All of your sins are forgiven. We Christians need to remember this. We need to remember that our sins are forgiven. This is a powerful reminder that God has given us Christians the authority to communicate to one another. I think that's in part what this last verse is alluding to. Verse 8, when the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Jesus is going to expand upon this later in Matthew 18 when he talks more about the authority that is given to the church. It is not as though we are doing the forgiving. Only God can forgive. We've established that. But we can say with faith, faith and confidence to a brother or to a sister or to anyone, we can say if you confess your sins to God, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and he will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That's 1 John 1.9. Everyone needs to hear this. If your faith is in Jesus, then brothers and sisters, your sins are forgiven. All of them. Your sins are forgiven. There's no asterisks there. There's no footnote. There are no exceptions. I think someone who understands this very well, Horatio Spofford, he wrote a famous hymn that we're about to sing in a moment called It Is Well. And he wrote this one line in the song. It says, My sin... Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. I love that he just like inserts his thought into the song. He's like, this is awesome. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. If 20 years after this incident the ex-paralytic sinned and repented, he would not need a fresh dose of forgiveness. He wouldn't need Jesus to come back and reapply some of that forgiveness that he gave. His friends who took him to Jesus all those years ago have the authority to remind him of what Jesus said to him. And they can say, hey, take heart, my friend. Your sins are forgiven. Are you feeling the weight of your sin? this morning? Are you feeling the physical effects of your waywardness? You feel like maybe you're just limping along. You feel lame and crippled, like, man, come to Jesus. <laughs> that is the heart of this passage. Crash through the roof. Sprawl yourself on the floor before Jesus and hear his words. You who are sick and suffering and you who are paralyzed in your sin, take heart. Be of great courage. Weep no more. Your sins are forgiven by the one man who has the power and the authority to wipe that debt away, brothers and sisters. 
Let me end with this. What's harder for Jesus to do? To miraculously heal a paralyzed man or, for, or to forgive that same man of his sins? As we remember the cross and what Jesus had to endure in order to pay for that man's sin, in order to forgive it, it is far harder for Jesus to say, your sins are forgiven. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. Debts can only be forgiven if they are paid. Someone has to pay for that debt. Sin can only be forgiven if it is paid for. To wipe that sin under the rug is not forgiveness. That's why John says in 1 John 9 that God is faithful and just to forgive. In order to maintain his justice and to be able to forgive our debt of our sin, he had to pay for that on his behalf. And he did so by dying the death that we should have died and by paying the price that we all owe. So as we take communion today, let us remember the cost of our forgiveness. But let us also give thanks that the payment was made by Jesus in full, not in part, not just a deposit. Jesus paid it all on the cross. And remember that the only reason why we're able to even have a meal with God, why we're able to commune with God, is because we have been forgiven. So let's remember that and walk in his forgiveness together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have made your covenant with us. Thank you that you have done so at great cost to yourself. Thank you for meeting us in our paralyzed estate, God. Lord, we confess that forgiveness is something that we don't understand perfectly, God, at least not your forgiveness. God, we confess our sin to you. We thank you that if we are in you, those sins have already been forgiven. And so I pray, Lord, that you would remind us of our forgiveness that was purchased on the cross. Father, help us to take this to others around us, Lord. Help us to be the friends that will carry others to your feet. Help us to be willing to pay the cost, God. Be willing to suffer ridicule. Be willing to invest our time to serving and loving other people, God. Lord, I pray that like the paralytic, you would give us all in this room an acute awareness of our sinfulness, God. But help us from that moment to look to you, the forgiver of sins. Help us to experience the, the complete washing and renewal and regeneration of what it means to be your children. God, we love you. We need you, God, to do this. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.